Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Um, I feel good about today's show because some things are happening out there that, that seem to show that a lot of reporters, a lot of the media, a lot of people in general are excited about some things that we've been excited about on this program for some time. Uh, uh, most importantly, the fact that the story of Joe Wilson and Valerie Plame is heating up. And in fact, some people are finding it somewhat reminiscent of what happened 30 years ago with Watergate. We'll talk about that in, in just a moment. And on today's show, courtesy of Chuck Monroe over at Newman Communications, who sent us so many great guests, we're going to have the author of Public Enemies, currently a New York Times bestseller. Brian Burrow has written about an interesting era, the so-called war on crime that took place in 1933 to 1934 when, um, when basically, uh, you know, it was the golden age of American bank robbery. Uh, urban cops and rural sheriffs had to try and deal with crooks with, you know, machine guns. And uh, in the process, America fought back with an obscure federal agency in Washington, uh, manned by a bunch of bumbling young college graduates and headed by then 38-year-old megalomaniac named J. Edgar Hoover. This promises to be a a most entertaining and interesting segment, so stay tuned for that. I hate to be formulaic. We don't want to be uh, overly predictable, but we seem to have a winning, uh, winning combo to start these programs, which is uh, basically to review this day in history, come up with a good quote, and tell a couple jokes. So let's uh, let's do that. On this date in history, July 14th, 1798, Congress passes the Sedition Act, which makes it a crime to punish scandalous, false, or malicious writings about the U.S. government. I... One to think about when I saw James Calstrom on TV a couple days back talking about how um, we don't need to cut things out of the Patriot Act. We need to add things to the Patriot Act. Calstrom, of course, was the man who uh, stepped in uh, to investigate Flight 800, which we've talked about on this program, a commercial TWA flight, a Boeing 747, that was clearly uh, downed by accident by an errant missile from a U.S. Navy ship, but we will not, we won't return to that today, but we're going to visit it again at some point in the future. Um, Okay, in this date in 1933, in Germany, all political parties except the Nazi party are outlawed. My segue to that would be that uh, probably the leading proponent in this country of a one-party state, Mr. Karl Rove, is a man we're going to talk about with some enthusiasm here in a moment. But uh, among quotes, how about this one? Believe in those who are seeking the truth. Doubt those who find it. That's from someone I don't know, Andre 
G'day. I think we better ask Dr. Andy if he knows, uh, knows who that is. And a couple of jokes here. One from a Dennis Regan. <laughs> Ever watch the TV show Cops? It's actually a pretty educational show. The most important thing I learned from watching is the one way to avoid being arrested? Wear a shirt. One from Chris Rock. You don't pay taxes. They take taxes. All right. We, we promised you on last week's show we were going to talk about a, a rather provocative, uh, for me anyway, obituary, um, something I think would interest you, the listener, that of Paul Winchell, a man who was a ventriloquist and an inventor. Unfortunately, Phil Proctor, who, uh, who worked with Paul Winchell um, in doing voiceovers, was uh, unable to join us on, on this week's show. Apparently, he's shooting a movie down in Palm Springs. I'm sure that uh, when he does have time, he, he will talk about uh, Mr. Winchell, and I was going to uh, dovetail that with someone over at um, Sutter, Sutter Hospital, to talk with them about um, about uh, the artificial heart, but unfortunately, uh, they weren't, they didn't get back to me either, so uh, what the heck, we'll, we'll put this off, we'll come back to that topic uh, in a week or two, because I just, I find the whole thing fascinating, and I, th- I think you will too. All right, I just received an email from uh, Gary, noting that the first KDVS DJ on the shuttle. Uh, yes, apparently Steve Robinson is one of the astronauts aboard uh, the shuttle mission. He, he attended uh, UC Davis, and according to the note from Steve, he did a uh, the folk show, a folk show at KDVS. I guess it was Sodbusters. I'm not sure about all this. So I think we better ask someone who would know more than I would, and uh, what better person to ask than Bill Wagman, who's the host of the Saturday Morning Folk Show right here on KDVS. Comes to you every Saturdays, 9 to noon, and um, I believe we have him on the line. Bill. Doug. Yes, I heard uh, the item about Steve Robinson being launched into space. I didn't know Steve Robinson, but uh, he has my heartiest congratulations. Uh, perhaps there are some other KDVS DJs who are more deserving of having been gone into space. But uh, we'll leave that up to NASA. Well, we, they did the best they could without with limited information. Yeah, I don't know. It's, apparently this guy, he's, he's, uh, he's born in Sacramento. He, uh, he attended UCD here looking at his bio. Uh, he graduated here, mechanical aeronautical engineering, 1978. Got a master's of science in Stanford, and, and now he's orbiting the Earth. Intriguing. So you don't know um, much. You anything about this folk show? Um, I did not. I do not remember hearing his folk show. But but. But that was quite a, probably quite a number of years ago. But I yeah, I wasn't even fully aware that, that there is quite a long tradition of folk shows here on the station. The Saturday morning folk show has been running for quite a number of years, uh, pretty much since uh, the early days of KDVS. So it it precedes you? Yes, it does, by quite a number of years. Uh, Robin Fox has been doing it for many years, Peter Schiffman and Hiram Jackson before that, uh, Jim Veet and others whose names escape me. Wow. Well, I, I, I I didn't know there was such a rich history. Yes, there is. Wow. Well, it's, it's all very interesting. Yes, it is. And on another interesting item, have you heard about Derek Smalls? 
the basis for Spinal Tap. Yes. No. I understand that he has passed. Oh no. I well, was hoping you might be able to shed some I, light on the situation. Bill, I don't, I don't know a thing about it. And, and, and well, maybe we can take a look into that and um, get back to you. Please do. We'll try and maybe we, we, got, we got a guest here in the second segment. We've got a lot to cover, but uh, uh, let's come back to it maybe in segment three. Sounds like a plan. That was Bill Wagman, the host of the Saturday Morning Folk Show, which I didn't realize goes back to the earliest days, perhaps when they were broadcasting, you know, to the dorms from the dorms. Anyway, we'll have to have Bill come back on again. He's doing some fine work there on Saturday mornings. In fact, you know, we need to bring a lot more of the, the music DJs on this program. We've covered all the public affairs hosts, I think, at this point, but I think there's an awful lot of rich, uh, a rich vein of music out there that we have not tapped into. Yeah, so look forward to more of that. We'll try to get anyone who's not orbiting the Earth, I think, to come on and talk to us. <laughs> All right, on Tuesday, the Sacramento Bee had a couple of items that just have to warm our hearts here on, on this show. Uh, buried in the paper was the following. Broadcast exec on the defensive. The head of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting defended his leadership on Monday, telling Congress he's seeking political balance in public affairs programming and is not bent on silencing liberal voices. Kenneth Tomlinson, a Republican, has come under fire in recent months for complaining about Now with Bill Moyers, saying the television show's, quote, left-wing bias, unquote, was unhealthy and jeopardized support for public broadcasting. Moyers has since left the show. Tomlinson's hiring of GOP lobbyists and a consultant to track the political leaning of guests on Moyers' show has worried public interest groups, and it also is a subject of an investigation by the corporation's inspector general. We think it's very good to see Mr. Tomlinson on the defensive on that issue, where he certainly deserves to be. We talked a couple of weeks back about uh, how Democrats uh, were demanding that Karl Rove retract his accusations that uh, liberals saw the savagery of the 9-11 attacks and wanted to prepare indictments and offer therapy and understanding for our attackers, whereas conservatives saw the savagery and prepared for war. Well, it appears that they've sufficiently PO'd some people to, uh, to really show some guts, which was frankly long overdue on the cover of The Bee on July 12th. It was the following, Rove case starts a siege. White House now won't comment on probe of leak, written by Mike Allen and Dan Balls of the Washington Post. It noted that Scott McClellan, the White House spokesman, has decided to just to simply not comment upon the fact that it Carl Rove has now been outed officially as the source of those leaks, naming Valerie Plame as a CIA agent. We, in fact, were sent a couple of emails on this, uh, this ever more hot topic, one from our own Dr. Andy, uh, quoting from Yahoo News, an article by David Korn, who writes for The Nation, and also Jerry Polakoff sent us an article that appeared in The Guardian of London. David Korn said that he advised all students of political speech to read the transcript of the press briefing conducted by Scott McClellan on Monday, noting it was a smorgasbord of stonewalling. Both articles uh, started out referring to the September 29th, 2003 White House press conference, which uh, went as follows. McClellan was asked, you said this morning, quote, the president knows that Karl Rove wasn't involved. How does he know that? McClellan, well, I've made very clear that it was a ridiculous suggestion in the first place, and I've said that it's not true 
and I've spoken with Karl Rove. He also said the White House would not stand for such conduct, noted that if anyone in this administration was involved in the leak, they would no longer be in this administration. When reporters uh, later in, the, in that uh, press conference uh, pressed the issue, McClellan said, I've made it very clear he, referring to Rove, was not involved, that there's no truth to the suggestion that he was. October 1st, 2003, McClellan saying of Rove, I made it very clear that he didn't condone that kind of activity and was not involved in that kind of activity. October 10th, 2003, earlier this week, you told us that neither Karl Rove, Elliot Abrams, nor Louis Libby disclosed any classified information with regard to the leak. I wonder if you could tell us more specifically whether any of them told any reporter that Valerie Plame worked for the CIA. McClellan. I spoke with those individuals, as I pointed out, and those individuals assured me they were not involved in this, and that's where it stands. Question. So none of them told any reporter that Valerie Plame worked for the CIA. McClellan. They assured me that they were not involved in this. Now, now, dear listener, it seems that, uh, you know, McClellan has no back off on making things quite clear in, in denying that Karl Rove had anything to do with it. Well, now it turns out that Karl Rove um, has released the people that he leaked this to, uh, you know, le- released them to go speak to the grand jury. They cut a deal with the special prosecutor, and uh, Rove was the guy. So, July 11th, 2005, White House press conference. Question, do you want to retract your statement that Rove, Carl Rove, was not involved in the Valerie Plame expose? McClellan, I appreciate the question. This is an ongoing investigation at this point. The president directed the White House to cooperate fully with the investigation. And as part of cooperating fully with the investigation, that means we're not going to be commenting on this while it's ongoing. Question, But Rove has apparently commented through his lawyer that he was definitely involved. Answer. You're asking me to comment on an ongoing investigation. Question. I'm saying, why did you stand there and say he was not involved? Answer. Again, while there's an ongoing investigation, I'm not going to be commenting on it. Well, it appears that the press smells some blood in the water here. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sharks are circling. At least, you know, all I can say to that is it's about time. We were able to bring to you, the listening audience of KDVS, Ambassador Joe Wilson on November 6th, 2003, where um, he outlined, you know, what is what now seems to have the national press, uh, you know, uh, uh, waking up from their slumber and, and addressing. Like, for example, when I clicked onto the Google homepage a few days back, I noted that, uh, the, the, that they referred you to consortiumnews.com article by Robert Perry noting that the Rove's leak points to a Bush conspiracy. We've had Ambassador Wilson on this show twice. We've had Robert Perry on this show twice. So uh, we feel that in our own small way we've been able to do our part to bring this important story before the public and try and beat the drum for it. And and it looks as though it's finally growing some legs and to that we, you know, we say hallelujah. Perry ended his article by noting that in a healthy democracy, the news media would have demanded answers before election 2004, rather than focusing primarily on the plight of several journalists caught up in demands for testimony from Prosecutor Fitzgerald. 
And, and speaking of that, Judith Miller has uh, has somehow managed to be a sort of a semi-cause celeb out there for the fact that uh, she's not naming sources. But the strange thing about Judy Miller sitting in a uh, you know in a jail cell right now is that she basically decided to make no accommodation with prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald as to how she might appear and not divulge sources. She just decided that she was not going to appear before the jan- grand jury, and um, you know. No citizen can do that. Even in 1998, President Clinton was forced to appear before a grand jury, but Judy Miller decided she doesn't want to. And so they say that for the next four months, while a grand jury has been impaneled, she may remain in jail. After the grand jury goes away, they may let her out. Very strange story. We will continue to follow this. Just want to close this item uh, by noting that the defense being offered by Karl Rove's lawyer is that he didn't specifically name Valerie Plame. He just said Joe Wilson's wife. Now, since as far as we know, Joseph Wilson is not a Muslim, nor is he a, a fundamentalist Mormon, therefore he's not a polygamist. So the identification of Joe Wilson's wife pretty much narrows it down to one individual. But uh, believe it or not, I heard a woman arguing on uh, on Talk of the Nation, uh, a, a lawyer who actually was part of crafting that legislation, that actually that might get him off the hook. Believe me, we'll continue to follow this with you. And I think we're going to see if we can't go back to our archives and uh, pull out uh, some of those quotes. John Dean uh, takes up the case of, of your wife uh, at some length in his Worse Than Watergate. He called it... Um, the situation, quote, one of the dirtiest tricks I've seen in lowball, hardball politics. He said that on, on this show that he feels that you would have recourse to the legal system if the Justice Department investigation doesn't go as, as well as it should. Are you, have you looked down the road at that at all? Well, what we have, have really tried to emphasize through all this is we're not, first and foremost, the victims. Uh, the victims are the United States and the, all the citizens of the country who suffer because it's the national security of the United States has been, that has been uh, um, compromised uh, uh, before our own security, our own lives have been compromised. It's important to keep that in, in mind. As a consequence, we don't want to do anything that detracts from, from uh, getting to the bottom of this from a national security perspective. Uh, after uh, or when uh, the Justice Department's investigation has run its course, then we'll decide um, uh, what our long-term um, interests are and what we want to do. I would say that we do have long-term uh, goals, uh, and uh, having Bob Novak's uh, Corvette convertible in, um, in, in on my wife's side of the garage might well be one of them. <laughs> we would remind you that if you go to radioparallax.com, you will, you will find about the last hundred shows uh, uh, available for you, the listening audience. Unfortunately, we've had a few problems, and the last four or five shows are not there, but we're going to try and correct that deficiency uh, real soon. And, and thankfully, in, in, a, in a related story, a very much related story, the issue of the Downing Street memo appears to not uh, be dying down and going away either, and to that, again, we say, Hallelujah. There was an article in the Sacramento Bee, June 23, 2005, I wanted to, uh, to, to go back to, written by Bob Deans, Cox News Service, noted that the memo story was kept alive on the web. The U.S. media are accused of ignoring indications Bush decided early on Iraq war. To that I say, duh. 
quoting from the article, the memo, which some regard as evident, which some regard, people that can read, the memo, which some regard as evidence of a misbegotten rush to war, might have been largely forgotten if not for a handful of citizens who felt it was too important to be swept under the rug of national conscience simply because the media shrugged it off. Apparently, Bob Fessmeyer, who writes press releases for an industrial company working from his home in Sunnyvale, California, with his wife Gina, a graphic designer, created the homespun website called www.downingstreetmemo.com in early May. It was noted that this did make a difference. Paul Waldman, senior fellow with Media Matters, which is a liberal media watchdog outfit, said that when there's this din, it can begin to have an effect. It's one of those things that wouldn't have been possible in the pre-internet age. They noted that the Fessmeyer site included directions for citizens wanting to target news organizations about the memo, which was first revealed early last month in the Times of London. It was a big issue in Europe and still is. It, it affected Tony Blair's re-election. But it's noted that other than the story by Knight Ritter newspapers, which was carried by the Sacramento Bee and a few others, the memo initially was largely ignored by the U.S. press. When people like a New York Times writer Paul Krugman mentioned the site, Fessmar said that gave us 70,000 visits in one day, and that was critical mass. We just quoted David Korn on, on the issue of, uh, of Karl Rove. Let's, let's quote him again from The Nation magazine about this. Korn said, taken together, these memos prove that Bush is not only incompetent, but a liar. Up till now, the administration has insisted that Bush was misled by the CIA and really did believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. According to this White House fairy tale, Bush reluctantly ordered the invasion only when Saddam refused to comply with UN inspections. It's just not so. Eight months before the invasion, the memos reveal, British Foreign Secretary Jack Straw deemed the evidence for WMDs so thin that it couldn't be used to justify an invasion. Writing in Salon.com, Eric Bollert noted the memos prove what critics have said all along. Bush decided on war first, then used WMDs and the UN inspections as justifications. Bollert noted that the London Times first ran the Downing Street memo on May 1st, and writing seven weeks after that, noted that the White House press secretary, Scott McClellan, had held 19 press briefings. Reporters asked him two questions about what the British memos reveal. Salon noted that years of bullying by conservatives have left journalists apparently fearful of appearing too critical of the president. We refer back also to an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer in the middle of last month. It was titled, Memos Irk Liberals, But Democrats Mostly Silent, noting that the silence of the loyal opposition is noteworthy. Even Democratic Party Chairman Howard Dean steered clear of the memos. None of the party's White House hopefuls have run to the cameras to recite the British line about how, quote, the intelligence and facts were being fixed, unquote, by the Bush team was noted that uh, the trouble with most mainstream Democrats is these people are up to their ears in Iraq having voted to authorize force in 2002. White House hopefuls Hillary Rodham Clinton, John Kerry, and John Edwards all voted for the war. Yeah, the two best Democrats with those credentials were Dennis Kucinich, who actually did not vote against it. He abstained. In spite of the contrary impression, he wanted to leave people here at the Varsity Theater in Davis when he spoke. 
And I like Dennis Kucinich. Howard Dean may have had the best record on that. He was pretty clear that he opposed uh, what happened in Iraq. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry to see that he's not speaking up now. Yeah, it's sad, believe me, missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the feminine five. But I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. I think we're just about out of time here for this segment. Uh, I should close, though, with the fact that uh, when I was fortunate enough to sit in over at Capitol Public Radio uh, last month, we had on George McGovern and Daniel Shore. It was quite interesting to note when I asked him about uh, what Bush has been up to in terms of what's an impeachable offense compared to Nixon's offenses in Watergate, which, of course, Senator George McGovern was the main, uh, the main person on the receiving end of those dirty tricks back in 1972 during the election year. McGovern said... He wished Nixon was in the White House now instead of what we got. I thought that was pretty interesting. And he certainly agreed that, uh, that lying about weapons of mass destruction to push us into a war that could not be justified in terms of international law was very definitely an impeachable offense, and that he agreed with John Dean. All right, stay tuned for our second segment. We will talk to Brian Burrow of Vanity Fair magazine, author of Public Enemies, America's Greatest Crime Wave and the Birth of the FBI, 1933 to 1934. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS, 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. <laughs> 